Hello, everybody, and welcome into our new workshop series uh, led by our teenagers. This is an abbreviated podcast uh, from the one that we're sending out to other churches across the country. The one we send out to other youth groups and ministers is about an hour and a half long. We thought we would kind of abridge it and give you a shortened version. I hope you give it a listen. I know it's longer than our usual podcast, but it's our teenagers and Madison and I and Casey and Jessica working through some of the more difficult passages of God in the Old Testament as it relates to his um, violent nature. So I hope you uh, take a second and listen to it, maybe change the way you view scripture. As we jump into it for the first about 15 minutes or so, it's kind of all of us reviewing what we already have talked about in previous classes, introducing this idea that we're going to be workshopping, and then the rest of the class is us going through a difficult passage in Joshua chapter 6 and trying to find the beauty of the Bible. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to our first of what is going to be four workshops on how to better understand and interpret the violent portraits of God throughout the Old Testament. Reality is we all want to love God, but sometimes, to be honest, God looks completely unlovable. So this whole process is going to be able a process in getting us to fall in love with the God who is actually far more beautiful than we've ever made him out to be. To help me tonight, to help all of us tonight, we have a couple of guests joining this podcast. Um, let's start with the Burkhards. Just give us your name and your age, and we'll kind of run through the, the group to show the diversity of people we have. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm 31. And I'm Jessica, and I am older than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm Bishop, um, and I am 25. And I am Madison, and I'm 26. Old! <laughs> um, I'm Camden, and I'm 18. I'm Brenna, and I'm 15. I'm Nathan, and I'm 15. I'm Maddie, and I'm 14. So as you can see, we have a couple of different age groups and demographics represented. I'm excited to see um, how we can all do this together. Now... To the guys on the screen with me, on the Zoom call, sitting around the table with the pod with me, we've done this before, so this isn't going to be kind of review for them, but I would encourage people at, who are listening to this that isn't a part of our group, uh, this is kind of the overview of what we're hoping to accomplish. So if you have a pen and paper, get it out. That includes y'all, us. Let's, let's do this. Um, let's start with the basic knowledge. First thing I want you to write down is this. Jesus looks like God. Jesus looks like God. There are a variety of passages to prove this. We're just going to use one, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, you can put that beside it if you would like to look at it later. We're not going to go undergo that right now. Throughout the New Testament, we see a couple of key things about what it means that God looks like Jesus. And Jesus looks like God. The key is this. Passages like James 1.17. What I want you to write is this. <clears throat> God is light and good. So Jesus looks like God, and God is light and good. Those are the two things we need to know. Now, by the way, James 1.17 says, For every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And there's a passage of 1 John 1 that also says, For God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. All. These are simple truths. This is something that anybody can understand. I teach a preschool uh, in the fall. And you know what we teach our kids? That God is good. 
And you know what? I wish people would stop trying to overcomplicate that because it's really that true. God is light and God is good. But what do we do when the grand majority of the Old Testament looks horrendous and very, very, very ugly? Let me ask, let me answer it by asking you a question. What do we do when God looks ugly? The answer is this. We ask the question, what else is going on? To give an example, <clears throat> you read in the New Testament, Jesus willing to die on the cross rather than kill. You see in the New Testament, Jesus washing the feet of his servants, trying to save everyone, including tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, right? We have all of that. But then in the Old Testament, if you disobeyed your parents, what happened? Probably got stoned. Yeah, probably got stoned. You did get stoned. That is actually correct. So what do we do when God says, or seemingly says, we're going to stone children? And then also in the New Testament, Jesus says, let the children come unto me. For no one can enter into the kingdom of heaven unless they are like one of these. Well, that seems like a turn of face. And that leaves us with two possibilities. Either God is schizophrenic or we're missing something. And I believe in the mental health of God. So I'm going to presume that it's not that one and that it's that we're missing something else. Very brave thinking. I know. Very progressive. You know, I feel very new age. God probably doesn't have schizophrenia. That would, that would make Christianity a whole lot more confusing. The, the old church is very angry right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, just wait. Give me like 10 more minutes and then it will really give him something to be angry about. So, throughout the Bible, we see moments that seemingly contradict the beauty of God with the beauty of Jesus. So, I want to ask, I want you to write this question, <clears throat> write this down underneath your last question. Let it say this. Do I trust blank on God or Jesus on God? Do I trust blank on God or Jesus on God? Whenever we come to a text that seemingly contradicts the beauty of God, we are to ask first, what's going on here that I'm missing? Because God clearly isn't this, right? Unless it's good and perfect and light and love, he, that's not him. So if we come across a biblical text and it confuses us because it doesn't look like Jesus, we ask first, what's going on? And then we have to ask ourselves another uncomfortable question. Do I trust whoever the writer is on God more than Jesus? Because if you believe, for instance, Moses was right on everything he wrote about God, then you believe that he's equal to Jesus. That Jesus, when he reveals stuff about God, was only as right as Moses, which is really dumb when you think about it because, for instance, me, me. I'm a complex individual. I'm a very complex individual. I'm a very handsome and complex individual. Um, and since you're listening to this on a podcast, you can't prove me wrong. Um, so that's me in a nutshell, right? So who would you believe more on me? Me or Nathan? Probably, <laughs> probably Nathan if you knew me all that well. But still, you should probably be believing me because I'm going to know more about me than Nathan is. And so whenever we come to a biblical writer that seemingly contradicts what Jesus says about God, who should we trust, God or whoever the writer is? The answer, of course, is Nathan. Um, so <laughs> it, for those of you listening on the podcast, it's definitely God. The correct answer is God, G-O-D. Okay. But today I want us to kind of unpack the message of scripture. 
and find out how we can take these violent, ugly pictures of God, workshop them, look around them, and find something beautiful about God underneath the surface. So, <clears throat> tonight, tonight we're going to workshop a text together, meaning all we're going to do is we're going to bring it up, and it's ugly, and then we're going to try to work it out and make it beautiful. Simple enough, right? Find an ugly picture of God, try to make a beautiful picture of God. Uh, for those of you who are listening at home or with your youth leader or our youth leader or pastor, um, these guys have not read Gen the passage we're going to be going through today. Have any of you read the passage we're going to be going through today? I read it every morning. Except for <laughs> apparently is really in love with Joshua chapter 6. The rest of us have not. We're going to be doing this like you. We're going to be doing this without any practice, without any preparation, to show you, first of all, how to think through these steps, and also to show that you can do it. You don't have to be a, a PhD in Bible to be able to figure out how to interpret Scripture. Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, for real. Okay. <laughs> Just wait. I promise. I promise. It's not as hard as you think. Tonight, we're going to go through four steps. For those of you who are listening and can write, write down these four steps. Four steps on how to interpret scripture. First, call it how you see it. That's what I want you to write down. Call it how you see it. The Pueblo Indians created an entire art form called fecal structures. Basically, it's what it sounds like. My dog does that every time. Find poop, you make it into statues. The problem is, it's still poop. And poop smells bad. The reality is, so many times we as Christians go through the Bible and we find these ugly pictures of God. And we say to ourselves, well, it's God, so I guess it's okay. But that's not fair. And that's not fair to God. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want you thinking that he's capable of being this hideous monster, right? He doesn't want that. He wants you to know who he really is. It's unfair and unfaithful to God to not call bad stuff bad. He gave you the moral compass and explained to you what's good and explained to you what's bad so you could use your brain. Using brain is an important part of an, imp an important part. I'm not using my brain. An important part of being a Christian, right? That's important. We have to do that. So, Call it how you see it. If you're reading a scripture and God kills a child or seemingly kills a child, look at that text and go, that's ugly. Call it how you see it. What's the first step? Um, call it how you see it. Call it how you see it. Second, look in the New Testament. If you come across a passage in the Old Testament that looks really hideous and ugly, load up your Google machine, fire it up, and type in... I don't care, Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, just find an online Bible and type in what you're looking for. Wait, so for why, why, would it, why would it be in the Old Testament if it's wrong? That is a question we'll answer. Wait, I have a question. What's yes. the second one? Oh, look in the New Testament. A lot of times Old Testament writers write things, but they don't have all the perspective, right? They don't have all the understanding. And so New Testament writers will often come back and correct some of the things that weren't right. For instance, as we talked about on Sunday, with the example of the destroying angel. Moses, in Exodus chapter 12, says God came and killed the firstborn of every Egyptian. But then Paul, later in Hebrews 12, says actually it was the destroyer, it was Satan who did that. Do you see what happened? 
Moses didn't have the full story. Paul did. Paul was able to go through and correct it. So if you go through an Old Testament passage and you're like, let's say you're looking up the flood, right? Which is Maddie's favorite Bible story of all time. Uh, let's say you're going through the flood and you're like, ooh, this is really rough. Type in flood and go to the New Testament and maybe a New Testament wrote, writer wrote about it. And maybe he'll explain what you're wrestling with. Because a lot of times the New Testament writers go through and correct some of the broken images that are in the Old Testament. So that's step number two. Third, third step. Look around the story. Look around the story. When I was a kid, my favorite holiday was Easter. Not because I love Jesus resurrecting from the dead. When I got older, that's the reason I love Easter. When I was a kid, it was because of Easter eggs. And I loved the concept of like going through and finding Easter eggs. I was a champion. I was the world's greatest Easter egg finder. I could put you all to shame. I had such an attention for detail as a kid that my strategy was all these little munchkins would go like running out in the churchyard and they would all run as fast as they can towards the back. And I was like, you fools. The people that planted the eggs are probably old. They're not walking that far. And so all these kids would go running past and I would just walk behind them and pick up all the eggs, right? My basket would be like two baskets full. I'd always have to share with people because the elders would be like, fish up. And I'd be like, it's my Reese's cup. Anyway, <laughs> my, my point is, is that often we are like those kids in the Easter yard when we come to texts in the Bible. We race to the end of the story. And then at the end of the story, we go, huh, that's really not good looking. And it's because along the way, we missed the Easter eggs that would have made it made sense. That makes sense. We ran past the, the moments that we needed to catch to get to the end. Once you finish a text, once you see that it's not pretty, once you see that there's nothing in the New Testament, go back through and start the story again. But this time, don't run the race. Do a nice little crawl. You know, pace yourself. Really try to catch every detail. And then fourth, and this is the most important one, wrestle. <laughs> um, sorry, I don't speak redneck. <laughs> sorry. It's W-R-A-S-T-L-I-N apostrophe. <laughs> <laughs> wrestling okay yeah uh no wrestle with the text right wrestle with the text don't give up so many christians there are we are where we are as a faith because so many christians came to ugly portraits of god in the bible and didn't want to put in the legwork to figure it out we're just like oh i guess god really likes to kill things and that's why we grew up in a generation where people are teaching us all the time well yeah god loves you right that we hear that all the time jesus loves you this i know but also there's this dark side of him and if you don't love him he wants to put you in hell and we're like oh they didn't put that as the second verse of jesus loves me so the four steps someone read them off to me maddie go oh let me get my notes uh call it as you see it boom sorry look in the new testament look around the story and wrestle just being a hype man, Maddie, you gotta accept it. Yes. Joshua chapter six. Nathan. Yeah. Would you start us, Maddie? I want you to read two. Yes, this is the one I wanted to read about. Sweet. Oh. Here's what we're gonna do. I want to read about all the death and destruction. Where, where even are we? Joshua <laughs> chapter six. Okay, so here's how we're gonna do this. Nathan, will you please read verses eight through thirteen? Chapter mm -hmm. six, right? Yeah, chapter six. Verses 8 through 14, and eight then... 14? 13, okay. 13. I'm so sorry. Okay. 13. Maddie, will you read 14 through 19? Yes. Yeah. Will you read 20 until... Whenever you feel like stopping. 21. 14. You got the fun one. 
Oh, I get to read about people dying. Yes, right. you do. Yes. Dang I think that's specifically for you. I'm not mature so, enough. Um, Joshua chapter 6, we're going to read 8 until verse 21 overall. Nathan, go ahead and start us off whenever you're ready, my man. <clears throat> okay. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. Hey, Nathan, the arm- hold on real quick. Nathan, real quick. E- <laughs> okay so we got that on soundbite continue nathan okay um the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets aka horns and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually but joshua commanded the people you shall not shout or make your voices heard neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day i tell you to shout then you shall shout so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle around the city, going about it once. They came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And then the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of, the, of Ramses' horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. Maddie, you're up. This is not grammatically good. So on the second day that they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, they did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, am I saying that right? Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in the house shall be spared, because she hid the spirit spies when we went wait we sent the but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them otherwise you will make the camp of israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the lord and must go into his treasury Um, I would just like to point out that in my version, it said, um, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, that's the that's the the correct term is it's actually a word that means holy war or or holy, um, holy destruction. So that's the word being used. So you're going to kill everything in the name of Yahweh. That's that's what that's what he's saying here. Uh, Casey, you want to read verse 24? When the trumpets sounded, the armies shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Okay. And the church said, Amen. You guys want to sing Jesus Loves Me now? or This is God's message, <laughs> oh, We need the air horn. Oh, yeah. My bad. Hold up. 
let me uh, let me just for dramatic effect. <clears throat> and the people killed everything that was in the town: man, woman, child, old ox, sheep, and donkey with the mouth of the sword. So that's so bad. I know, right? Let's see what you think. Uh, we're just gonna follow these four steps, and we're gonna see if we can make the story sound less bad. If we can unlock that deeper truth, right? Uh, so let's start here. Let's talk about the things that we saw that were evil in it. The things that didn't look good. The things that didn't look like love, light, and, and Jesus. Yes, Nathan. Um, you know, it's probably not good to walk around a lot. Um, also, yeah, you know, the whole killing everyone and everything was kind of bad. Yes, yes. Um, I bet the horns were annoying too. What'd you say? That I bet the horns were annoying, too. <laughs> yeah, you should probably wear ear protection while blowing those that close to people. So, so far, the two acts of evil that we have from this text, or the two acts of darkness from this text, are first and foremost, the destruction of every man, woman, child, and animal, and second, the complete lack of care for one's eardrums. Uh, any other things in this that don't seem to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ? <clears throat> How about taking all of the uh, silver and gold? Yes. Taking all the silver and gold is a big one. Um, I don't know if you got what New Testament y'all are reading, but with me, um, or what Bible you're reading, but for me, Jesus didn't say things like, hey, you can kill anything you want and also take whatever you want from them. Uh, that is, this is the way. Uh, that is not Jesus's way. Um, maybe the Mandalorians, but not his. And so I think it's really important that we talk about what it is that, that is actually happening here. Because we just called it as we saw it. Jesus and God engaged in acts of horrific violence indiscriminately to all. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Okay. Cam Dong. See. Need you to read a passage in the New Testament for me. I Okay. 43-45. Okay. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Did you catch verse 45? You are to love as the what? Um, sun shines and the rain falls indiscriminately to all because God causes it to the, the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous and the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. In this situation, Jesus is saying God's love is indiscriminate. It doesn't care who you are or what nation you belong to. However, in Judge, uh, Joshua chapter 6, it sure seems like God has a vendetta against a certain group of people. And instead of indiscriminate love raining down, it's indiscriminate steel on the, the heads of these innocent people. So, what do we do? We go to step uh, two. Let's look at the New Testament. There's nothing in there. Sorry. I already, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that step for you for time's sake. So we get to step three. We got to look around the text. Let's see if there's anything in the story that can maybe give us some explanation as to what's going on here. Um, let's... Pick it up. Uh, Casey, could you read for me Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15? And then Nathan, mm -hmm. Joshua chapter 6, 
verses one through five. Sure. Okay. Now, guys, need you to just do me a favor here. For those of you listening at home, I want you to do this as well. Pay close, very close attention to what's being said here. Okay. Don't let details go unnoticed. By the way, when Madison and I were reading through this text earlier, preparation for this class, there was a moment that blew both of our minds. I want to see if you catch it at first. It, I didn't, haven't caught it for the first 25 years of my life, so there's no pressure. But just really focus in on the words that are being said, okay? Thumbs up. For those of you on a podcast, I hope you're putting your thumb up. If not, oh, yeah. I will really silly. Okay, uh, Casey, go ahead and read that for me. <clears throat> Joshua 5, 13 through 15, right? That's correct. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So if you caught anything there, don't say it yet. We're going to come back to it. This is the part that was new to me today. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Read it for me, Nathan. Okay. Um, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and all of the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the, <clears throat> and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when you make a long blast with the ram's horns, you will, hear the long, you will hear the sound of the trumpet. And then the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city sh will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Okay. That last line, to give you some clarity, um, ESV gets a little wordy sometime. It says, um, the company is to go each individual running in a straight line, turning neither to the right or left. Okay. What do we got? Anybody catch anything? Okay, Nathan, go. Um, so when um, Joshua asked the man with the sword um, whether he was uh, for or against Israel, he said neither, and it can be implied that that man was an angel because you know he knew it was holy ground and such. Um, so, you know, Joshua kind of had a revelation at that point because he was like, "Oh my gosh, we're we're not doing things the way that God want, wants us to." So, yeah, too bad he really kind of missed the mark on that and just kept kept on right along, not even stopping to think. Yeah, I think you're right. So the first thing is, is God starts the story. Notice this. God starts the story by saying, I'm not sure if I'm on your side yet. I need to know what you're going to do. Now let's really focus in on his commands, what he says to Joshua. Okay. What is something he said to Joshua? Um, on the seventh day, you'll blow the trumpets and shout, and then the wall of the city will fall. Yes. Uh, what are they supposed to carry with them? 
Oh, sorry, Camden, what you got? Oh, sorry. I just uh, – I noticed the one thing that I think you, you talked about or you talked that you might have noticed. I don't know. It might be it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so our, when Nathan said it or when you said it, I think it made more sense. Um, you talked about how they would go straight through the city, not looking uh, left or right. It means he didn't want them to pillage it. He just wanted them to go through it. Yes. That is precisely what I found. So what we have here is God's command saying, walk around the city, don't hurt anybody. Seven days. Why, why were they wanting that to happen? Do you have any guesses as to why God would say, hey, I want you to march around the city making as much of a racket as possible for seven days? So they can drive them out of the city. So the people of Jericho would be afraid and flee in safety. Did the Jericho people listen? No. Then God said, okay, fine. If they don't leave, I'm going to take the city walls down and I want you to, wait, what did Joshua say? Let me, let me read what Joshua said to the people later, right? What he said later is, this town is to be an object devoted for destruction to Yahweh. Everything in it must be destroyed. Is that what God said? No. What did God say? Um, Go through a piece. Everyone runs straight through the city, neither turning to the left or to the right. Can, can, I'm sorry, maybe I'm wrong on this. I could be. I'm new to warfare. Uh, but can you effectively destroy an entire city without turning? Not by yourself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess you could cause like some real just crazy line of damage, but you're not even supposed to. You're supposed to be running full speed. What's interesting is later on in that story, uh, notice verse... Aha, here we go. Verse 20. Okay, I'm going to read it out of my translation. You can tell me if your translation vastly differs. So the company shouted and they blew on the horns. And when the army heard the sound of the horn, the, the army gave a great shout. Ah! And the wall fell flat. And the company went up to the town, each individual straight ahead. And when they arrived at the town, they captured it and then devoted everything that was in it. They didn't run through the town like God said. They ran straight without turning until they got to the city walls. And then they're like, free for all. Did God say anything about him wanting the gold or silver to be pillaged? Did God say anything about how he wanted the people to die? No. In fact, what God said, what God said sounded a lot like Jesus. Hey, there's these people. They're causing you some problems. They're going to cause you some more problems here in a little bit. We Obviously, we need to get them out of here. How can we get them to leave in a peaceful way? I have it. During the, the morning and afternoon, because it would have only taken about an hour to walk around Jericho, right? So in the morning, I want you to walk out. I want you to walk all the way around Jericho, and I want you to make as much noise as humanly possible. And then I want you to go back to your camp, giving them the full day to leave. And I want you to do that over and over and over and over and over again. To try to get them out. And if they don't leave, ugh, that stinks. I don't really want to destroy their home. But we'll take down the wall. We won't even destroy their homes. We'll just take the wall down. Right? We'll just take down the wall. And then you guys run straight through the town. Making havoc and noise. Get them to run away. Don't hurt them. And then Joshua turns around and says what to his people? 
pillage the city. Kill them all. And not only does he say kill them all, who does he want them to kill them for? God. So, at the beginning of the story, when uh, Joshua asked God, hey, are you on my side or the enemy's? And he said, neither. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? This story, it started looking terribly ugly, brutal, bad. Why would God command such acts of violence? But at the end of it, how does God look different to you? Looks like a disappointed father is saying, okay, look, I tried to tell you this thing. You didn't listen. I'm upset. Yeah. Does the God, does, does God at the beginning, at the end of the story, look like the bloodthirsty tyrant he looked like at the beginning? No. Yeah, someone say something. All y'all are shaking your head. I totally love it, but on a podcast, no one. Yeah, knows. I realized that like two seconds ago. <laughs> For those of you at home, everyone shook their head. Yeah. Maddie, you were about to say something. What you, what you got? It just shows that you can't like, you can't just like take anything out, I guess. Even though the flood is bad, even though I don't like the flood. We'll get to that next week. You, you can't just, like, take anything out of the Bible and be like, evidence God is bad. You really have to look around it a lot. But even for It's something I learned. It's, like, something new to me, so. See, people are learning. Because a bunch of atheists will come up to you and be like, bam, bam, bam. And you're like, ah. And you're, you don't really know how to, like, come back to it. And now you just got to be like, man, but like, did you read this right before it? Mm -hmm. And they're like, they're like, no. Yeah. And you're like, that's what I thought. <laughs> so it's really, it's just interesting. You can't take everything in the Bible at face value sometimes. I mean, with Jesus, you kind of can because he's, you know, the main person the Bible was written about, but the main like, character, you know? yeah, he's the protagonist. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, with Moses and Joshua and, you know, a lot of other people, especially in the Old Testament, you kind of got to look, you got to, you got to follow the four steps. You, you, you got to see how it sounds, go to the New Testament, look around, and then wrestle. Yep. Just gotta <laughs> wrestle with it. Just <laughs> Let me ask you this. I, I wasn't planning on going here tonight, so ad lib. Um, oh let me ask you this. I, I guess my question is, can the Bible still be inspired if Joshua got it wrong? Just because Joshua got one thing wrong doesn't mean that he got everything wrong. It's a good answer. But what if what if inspiration was redefined? What if it's the perfect book for what it's designed to be? What if the Bible is not supposed to be a historical textbook full of things that happened? What if instead the Bible is supposed to be the human diary? Things that happened in our story with God from our perspective. Then all the mistakes of the Old Testament writers, the moments where they got God wrong, no longer are mistakes, but just a different chapter of the diary. It would be much like Maddie, I see you down there. For those of you who don't know, Maddie's dad is one of my favorite people on planet Earth. He's simultaneously super cool and also super duper smart uh, and super duper handsome. He's kind of oh, yeah. he's kind of the whole guy, right? So you got Jason, right? That's his name, Jason. Um, 
So Jason is really, really smart. Let's say Maddie started when she was four years old writing a diary. And it was all about her dad. And it was all about her relationship with her dad. Well, when she's four years old, she's probably going to say things like this. <clears throat> Today, dad screamed at me for no reason when I got near this giant metal box. He's so mean, I don't understand it. No, say light bulb, because that actually happened with a light bulb. Like a okay, really hot light bulb. We'll edit it in. We'll edit it in. <laughs> <laughs> so let's try again. <clears throat> so let's say Maddie is writing this journal about her dad, right? And in this journal to her dad, she talks about when she's a kid, hey, there was this ball of light. And I went next to it and I was like, it was so bright. I just wanted to see it. And then, and then my dad yelled at me for no reason. My dad must hate all things light. He must hate anything that's lit up. Well, to Maddie's four-year-old brain, that makes sense. That just makes Maddie sound like a moth. <laughs> Honestly, it does. <laughs> Insert all of the, the moth memes here. Oh, gosh, um, lamp. <laughs> so, you, uh, so she goes through. But when she's eight, she realizes that that bulb is called a light bulb. Huh. So now the journal, she like she writes in her journal. And she's like, "Oh, hey, by the way, today I learned something cool. That orb of light that I got yelled at for yell for going near one time. Turns out it's a light bulb. How nifty is that?" And then let's say she's twelve years old and she learns it's hot. Well, now wait a second. Now she's understanding more of the story, right? Someone say yes. So I know you're listening. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot podcast. It's the yeah. same thing that happened with um, Norman. Yeah, Norman's okay. journal. Exactly. Exactly. So we have these examples, right? Wait. And the, the older you get, the more you mature, the more you learn about the guy you're writing about. So Moses, living way a long time ago, didn't understand God. He just didn't understand God. But as the people throughout the diary, the story of the Bible, understood it more, you'll notice that the violence that God has ascribed to goes down and down and down, right? Once you get past the first five books, God looks a lot less violent. Then you get through the Joshua and Judges, and he looks pretty bad, but then he gets better. And then in the Kings, it's better and better until you get to Jesus, and all of a sudden, he looks amazing. And we can look at that and say, well, that's a schizophrenic God. He needs to figure it out. Is he going to be this hateful, wrathful dude, or is he going to be like the kind, loving, gentle guy who washes feet and hugs babies? Like, which one is he going to be? Is he going to kill babies, or is he going to love them? Because he apparently does both. Well, that's broken. What, what the story actually is, is our story, written by us. To understand him the closer we so get to pretty Jesus, much just like just like super super um taken out of context like mm -hmm. like extremely out of context like like out of context on like a whole new level here's a question can you take any old testament passage out of the bible and just use it to prove a point yeah yeah that's basically what we did the other week yeah but here's my question is it right to do that no because it's Perfect. out of context. You're not being a good lawyer for doing that. The context is correct. The Bible's not evil, equal, right? From Genesis to Revelation, this isn't all equal. Now, it's all equally important for us understanding our story, right? Sorry, for those of you on the podcast, I'm holding up a Bible. I realize I said, look at this. <laughs> this is yes, I'm holding a Bible. And in yeah, this Bible, we've done that a lot. From Genesis to Revelation, this gets better as we go. Because we understand more of God as we go. He is currently pointing at the Bible right now. Yeah, sorry. I am moving my <laughs> index finger in a right-to-left fashion, indicating the duration of Scripture. I'm definitely going to edit all that out. So, 
<laughs> you should have just said this book and it would have just made perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> I know. What am I doing, guys? What am I doing? Okay. Uh, my The whole point with this is saying this. Don't get stuck in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, the violent pictures of God, especially early on, the things that we see that God's being attributed to, probably he's not actually doing. Probably he never actually commanded. As we'll talk about next week with the flood, did God really flood the earth? Fine. No. no, he didn't. Was God, did God ever drop an ounce of water onto the ground? No. He didn't. In fact, there was only one active verb that God does in that whole story. Spoke. Actually, he breathed. And it's at the end of Genesis when it says that his ruach, his breath, moved the waters back. The only active thing God did in that story was drive the waters away, not bring them down. We'll talk about it next week. Um... I think it's important that like a lot of people recognize that the Bible was written by people just because that, you know, the Holy Spirit was, you know, breathed through people doesn't mean that, you know, it will, you know, prevent some point of view changes. People are people and they make mistakes. First Corinthians 14, NATO, you turn there. Since you First... brought that up, I have a passage for you to read. Oh boy. <laughs> I love how you just know them off the top of your head. Someone could be like, yeah, this happened to me today. And you're like, that also happened here in the Bible. It's just I wish, man. I feel like I'd be such a better Christian if I could do that. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's do 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 13. 13. Going to uh, verse 15. 13 to 15. All right. Uh, 16. Read through 16. 16. All right. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Can you ever understand the writings of Moses without Jesus? <clears throat> nah. Because in this passage, what lies over your heart and stops you from being able to understand it? Veil. A veil. Even, it, Paul says, even to this day, when you read the law of Moses, when you read the stories of Moses... Even now, Moses still confuses you. Look to the Messiah, and he'll make sense of it. Now, uh, to your point, Nathan just a moment ago had this really insightful comment where he said, and I'll let you repeat it. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I think it's important to remember that people wrote the Bible. Just because, you know, the Holy Spirit was, like, breathed through them and, like, influenced their penmanship doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it's without flaws and it's without inaccuracies because you know the bible is a 2000 year old book written by people who didn't know a lot of the stuff that we know now and so you know people make mistakes and it's in the human nature to make mistakes and so you know 
Absolutely. The Bible is not without flaws. Let's all read together 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you don't have, you're not there, turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians 14. Um, you're going to read verse 31 for me, Nathan. Verse 31. And this is just one passage. We can go to other passages if, if we need to later on to kind of prove the same point, but this is kind of a good jumping off point. Um, Wait. Let me, oh, go ahead, Manny. 1 Corinthians what? 1 Corinthians 14, 31. Oh. All right, I'm going to... Bishop, what version do you use? Because it's easy to read. Uh, I use the... It's... Uh, what What? What are you on? I'm on ESV. I'm on U, U version. version? Yeah. Uh, they don't have it on U version. Um, <clears throat> sorry, the you can... Roman Christian or yeah. CSB is really good. CSB is good. NET is good. NLT is good. I use the... Ooh, I used to use NLT. I'll use them. It's... Um, I use something called the Bible for everyone. It's a translation by Dr. John Golden Gay and N.T. Wright. Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, okay. That makes a lot more sense because I had to read the word prophecy and I didn't know. Oh, wait. For all who prophecy. Is a prophesy or prophecy? Prophesy. Okay. That's what I thought. All right. In this way, all who prophesy will have to turn will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Go to verse 32. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. So, in the original Greek, it reads a little different, right? So, when we were talking about this earlier, Madison and I had actually a discussion not related to this um, class, but we were just talking about it. It actually says the spirit, not your spirit. It's interesting that your translator did that. Not a huge deal either way. The point is the spirit of prophecy, the one that comes from God. Who is in control of, of that? Wait, who's in control of the spirit? Yeah, who's in control of the spirit of prophecy? God. Is it? Mm, I hope. <laughs> yeah, you would think. But actually it says that the person person prophesying is in control of the spirit of prophecy within them what that means is this god chooses certain people to give oracles to give lessons from god right for instance moses a prophecy or an oracle is just simply something from the lord joshua is the is the prophet we just read right the guy giving the oracle from god but once god gives the message who is responsible for getting it to the page uh, uh, Joshua or Moses. Yeah, the prophet. And here's another thing. It says that they are in control of that prophecy. God gives the spirit of the prophecy. He gives what he once said. But once it enters into the person, who's responsible for putting it on the page or speaking it out loud? The prophet, the person prophet. who heard it. Yeah. So in, in the case of Joshua, God told him what he wanted to be said. And who was responsible for conveying that to the Israelite people? Joshua. And did Joshua do a good job? Not really. No. no, he didn't. Also, let's cut Joshua some slack because he did it with a good reason, right? He thought devoting everything to God would be a good thing. What he didn't know is that God didn't want the blood of children dedicated to him. Because Joshua didn't really understand God. Joshua understood Baal. Joshua understood Ra and the other gods of the region. But he was still learning about this Yahweh guy. And he had a long way to go before he understood that he looked a lot like Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Yeah, Camden. Okay, so why didn't God correct him then and there? 
that's, See, that's my great question. question. That's a great question. Why didn't God correct them right then and there? Anyone want to take a stab at it before I, I give my thoughts? Um, I now ask a question. <laughs> well, yeah, there's this thing called free will. Um, God gives free will and cannot rescind it. He can't rescind it because if he were to take away free will, what is he taking away from the universe? Love. Love. Why, Nathan? Because you can't love something out of force. You have to love something out of, you know, loving them. You can't coerce love. Hey, uh, Maddie, Camden, do either one of you remember any of the laws of creation we studied all of those many months ago at the fall of 2019? No. Oh, yes. Let's go. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Are they the ones where it's like for love? Love requires risk. <gasps> oh, my gosh. I remember that. That's a trip. <laughs> risk requires... Uh, I thought there was something about consequence or something. Yeah. So love requires risk. Risk requires uh, responsibility. And then, yeah, so that we kind of rearranged the order there. But yes, that's the gist of it. Good job. I'm really impressed you guys remember that from the fall of 2019 before COVID. Man. Oh mad, respect. mad respect. So, um, yeah, BC. <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> okay. Um, so... We have these laws of creation that cannot be broken. If God coerces love, he takes away free will, and he, in essence, takes away love. Now, is this a deficiency of God? Does it make God weak that he can't create love without choice? You would think that it does, but it doesn't. Why? Because God is this omnipotent thing. And, like, you would think that, oh, yeah, he can, he can literally change the laws of the universe to where he can force things to love him. But, you know, deep down, he can't. Because it's like, it's, it's changing the word love. You, like, <laughs> you can't love something out of force. That's just not in its nature. And so to change love, or to change, you know, forceful love, you would have to change love itself. We're going to go ahead and cut off the podcast here. We think this is a good ending spot, and we'll pick it up next week. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you reach out with any questions. I look forward to, uh, to you joining us next week as we continue this workshop.